0: Welcome to r and 191, another bunker episode, this one on sequels. That's right, in October of 2020, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons put himself in a maybe let's say, symbolic bunker, (laughs) and he set out within the 31 days of October of that year to watch 31 films, read three books, and watch all 36 episodes of the original Twilight Zone while somehow keeping my sanity. Thank you for listening to the second bunker episode. I am aware the first bunker episode was highly problematic, but it's the only of the bunker episodes that I didn't have any support with, and I think it was the toughest bunch of movies out of the six, uh, out of the 31 that I pulled. It was just a, a tough crop of movies, and I'm used to having someone to bounce ideas off of. This episode, we'll be hearing the voices of regular contributors, Mr. Lee Beckman and Mr. Scott Layman. They're going to help me with a couple of the reviews and a discussion, uh, a book report of Friday the 13th: Church of the Divine Psychopath. So. Thank you for being here, I know it's weird to not have like a full-blown guest, but I will review six movies, I'll give you a bonus review of a book, I will rank them at the end, and we're gonna get through this together. 2020 was a scary year, I needed to hide in a bunker, and I needed to watch some movies, and I needed to record some reviews. In the age of COVID, it was really hard to get guests for my show, so this is a way for me to stay productive. And I think each Bunker episode is going to get a little bit better. Let's do this. Oh, well, of course. What am I talking about? You go into every episode of Rank and Review as always, knowing that there will be spoilers for the movies discussed, and there will be coarse language coming from me. And the movies under discussion this week, Dracula 3, The Legacy, Lost Boys, The Tribe, Mimic 3, The Sentinel, Amityville 3D, children of the corn five fields of terror the final destination and like i said my book report on friday the 13th church of the divine psychopath thanks for being here you guys 2005, a direct-to-video threequel called Dracula 3 Legacy was released and unleashed upon the world. And I think that this sort of particular product preys upon people who were young and into horror. If this had come out 10 years earlier, if it was the mid-90s instead of the mid-aughts, I would have been all over it. Like, uh, I wasn't that picky about what I was going to rent, as long as it was horror. And I looked at the back, rated R, you know, adult contact, uh, adult content, violence, nudity, coarse language, it felt forbidden, so I wanted to see more of it. And I would take as much as the world was willing to give me at that particular stage in my life. <clears throat> and so... Here this is, same version of that, in the middle aught. It says Wes Craven Presents, but unfortunately Wes Craven had no creative hands in this at all. I think he just allowed his name to be put on it to help sell the the goods, but... um, that's okay. I mean, (laughs) you want to make a quick buck, you want to make a quick buck. And that's what Miramax was doing. The Weinsteins were making cheap horror and putting them out quickly and cheaply. So they'd come out in vast numbers all over the place. They'd be everywhere for a few months and then they're gone. And a lot of them have been lost to history. And you'd think maybe Dracula 3 Legacy would be one of those. But I don't know. I think (laughs) in the narrow range of direct-to-video sequels, You know, piggybacking off of the whole Dracula, people are obsessed with vampires thing. This is actually constructed fairly well as far as satisfying a full-line story. I think it's helped in that part two and three were shot simultaneously. They knew they were going to make these two movies, so the story carries over directly. If you just wandered in, maybe it wouldn't mean as much to you, but I think, you know... There's some good guys and they want to rescue this lady from evil vampires, including the big bad Dranc- Dracula himself. And Jason Scott Lee, as this sort of religious priest who uh, hunts vampires, is going to help his friend Luke, played by Jason London, get the love of his life back and hopefully defeat Dracula. Dracula is uh, is actually being played by Rudger Hauer in this movie, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. Cause Rutger Hauer was sort of anything-for-a-buck kind of actor at this stage in his career, and it's not the first time that he's played Dracula. In fact, he was Dracula in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Mm. So he's played Dracula in two different films. Um, I guess he probably felt like he was slumming it here, but the person that my heart really goes out to is Roy Scheider, who makes a very brief appearance in this one. He has more to do in the second chapter of this, but Roy Scheider has to be one of the most underrated actors of, like, ever. Yes, I know everybody loves him from Jaws, but even in bad movies, that guy always brings it, you know? He did a, like, absolutely saccharine treacle, you know, it was supposedly about debate, but it was a not-so-subtle Christian values movie with Kirk Cameron, and he was good in that movie. The movie was garbage, but he was good in it. And despite being an out-and-out classics early in his career, all that jazz, the French connection, you know, um, Marathon Man, like, he's just, he was so important to the the 70s and the 80s that the back end of his career is made up of movies like this. Kind of has to sting a little bit. That said, he's fine in the movie. As far as our headliners, Jason London's kind of a weird case to me. I felt like I've been hard on him in the past, He's like the main character in Dazed and Confused, but he's like the least interesting part of Dazed and Confused. He's the main character in Mallrats, but he's kind of the least interesting part in Mallrats. So it's kind of, I feel like I've been tough on him, but he's a journeyman actor. It's a starring role. He's sort of playing the, the plucky, heroic sidekick guy. And I think he actually does decently here. And say what you will about Mr. London, he's, he's stuck around, he's still working. I do feel like the high watermarks in his career maybe arrived earlier than he wanted them to, but there they were. Same can be said for Jason Scott Lee, actually. He played famously Bruce Lee in the biopic of, of Bruce Lee, Dragon. And that was supposed to sort of launch him. And again, he's been around, but he's never been super big. So it was cool that he gets to, you know, bring a lot of physicality and energy to this vampire hunting role. And so what do we have, what are we looking at? Clearly it's shot in some European country. There's, um, pretty rich production values considering that it's direct-to-video, but I don't think it's completely hiding, you know, it's cheapness. It's got a few celebrity faces, but they just do their few minutes of screen time, and they're out the way. They tick off the boxes. What do you want out of a, a Dracula or a vampire movie? Well, you want sex and violence, and they're gonna deliver that. Uh, there's some good choreographed sort of martial arts fights and there is some sort of interesting temptation and seduction sequences. There's a whole room full of lady vampires that are like naked and writhing and feeding on each other, which, again, doesn't mean as much to me today, but if I'd seen that at a younger age, I could see it actually having some level of appeal. But these are the things that will bring someone to a movie like this, not, for instance, the dialogue. You show up and ask for more support.
1: I encountered certain...
0: Listen to me. ...hardships, your eminence. We hear rumors, troubling things. What rumors? That you have crossed certain boundaries
2: in pursuit of this beast that somehow he may have tainted you. The church has set me to the task of ending him. And by God's will,
1: nothing, no obstacle, physical or otherwise, shall stop me from executing this duty. So I'm asking you now, do I continue to have your blessing in this? Why have you lost your faith in me completely? We have no doubt that you are the Lord's willing servant. But it is you we pray for now. You we fear for.
0: I know that's not a great, great example, but in the interest of being further charitable to this movie, here's one thing I will say, going into spoilers for this movie that nobody really cares about or talks about anymore. (laughs) It doesn't have the ending that you expect. It's been three movies. This is the last chapter of the Dracula 2000 cycle. These, You know, we've been seeing these guys fight for two straight movies now to get to their big adversary. And yes, Dracula is defeated. But you know what the movie doesn't really have? A very happy or satisfying ending in a lot of ways. It sort of goes like, oh, by the way, this was a horror movie. I don't know if you guys remember it, but, like, vampires are bad. (laughs) And, uh... Not only does our righteous vampire hunter discard his, you know, religion, he he stops being a priest in order to defy the church and continue hunting Dracula. In the end, by defeating Dracula, he kind of becomes the leader of the vampires himself. And we know just how powerful this guy was before he was a vampire, so now that he is one, um, he is, uh, you know... He, in the end, didn't make things better. He, by becoming this forbiddable, or formidable vampiric leader, he's arguably made things worse. And Jason London, the, the Luke character, he fails to get the love of his life back. He, at one point, has to kill a child because he doesn't quite act quick enough and it gets vamped. And uh, he kind of wanders off broken and towards an uncertain future. I mean, maybe they had thoughts that they could do a future sequel where these two former friends end up having to do battle. Obviously, that never came to be. But I do have to admit that this movie had a lot more going on than I expected it to. The acting is decent. The action scenes are well enough handled. It does seem to be in a bit of a hurry, and it is sort of tangibly second-tier B-movie territory. But, again, I ask you, in earnest, when you sit down to watch a movie called Dracula 3, what do you want? Do you want sex and violence? Because it's got that. Do you want vampires? It's got that. It's got decent energy, and it will pass the time. Will it linger in your memory, and did it linger in mine? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. I guess... uh, in the new modern world, this is sort of a direct-to-stream thing, and it would even have less pomp and circumstance than, than you know, a, a direct-to-streaming platform thing happens now. Movies get lost, and they always have, in the sort of leap from one type of video to another. VHS to DVD, we lost movies. DVD to blu ray we lose movies. And the physical medium to the digital medium, we will lose movies. But more than that, it's hard to find movies as they come out. There's so many of them, and there's not really a campaign saying, come check out this movie. Like, it's really on to the consumers to seek these things out. And I think these types of movies are going to have a harder time finding their audience. They're still going to get made, they're still going to get watched, but to find one that stands out from the crowd is going to be increasingly difficult. Saying all that, does it stand out from the crowd? Well, to me it does, in that it doesn't suck. I mean, I went into it expecting it to suck, and it doesn't really suck. But I don't sound super excited, do I? (laughs) And I guess that is the honest truth. We come to it. Um, But could I spend a sick day afternoon watching these, you know, retro Dracula movies just to see some of these faces before they were famous? Sure, why not? It's an is-what-it-is entry. And, you know, during this whole bunker experiment, I've had to watch a lot of hard sits. And I've even had a few movies that, like, just because of how much I've been taking in, it was almost too much for me to sort of consume, because I was just being so greedy in my consumption of the, the horror media that sometimes things felt like too much. This is a forgettable fast food meal of a movie. And sometimes that's exactly what you're looking for. Chris and Nicole came to Luna Bay.
2: Where's the sun? Gives you wrinkles.
0: Looking
1: for a fresh start.
0: Sorry, did I scare
1: you? I'm having a surf party, you should cruise over.
2: But there's something strange about their new friends.
1: You have to see the world the way we do. Never grow, you'll never die, and you'll never know fear again. So what he's trying to say is, we're vampires.
0: Ooh, scary. No, but seriously. (laughs) We're I'm
1: Edgar Frog, surfboard shaper and vampire hunter. Your
2: sister's a suck monkey. Nicole!
1: I tried to eat that guy. I'm a vegetarian. Dying is a part of living. That depends. From Warner Premiere comes the next chapter of the cult phenomenon, Lost Boys, The
0: Tribe, coming 2008. Order
2: the State!
0: Lost Boys, The Tribe. This is a sequel to the 1987 Joel Schumacher vampire thriller, The Lost Boys, 21 years later, released direct to video. Um, do you have an opinion on, on sequels, and more specifically, direct-to-video sequels? Direct-to-video sequels, 20-some years later, especially?
1: Yeah. Um, usually, it's usually not a good sign, right?
0: Flags go up right away, right? This is obviously not a passion project. This is like, what can we make money on? Well, The Lost Boys has some cult notoriety around it. It did okay when it first came out, but Lost Boys is one of those movies that was really discovered on home video more than it was a big hit in the theaters. And yes, I agree. A lot of these, especially direct-to-video ones, are just they weren't amazing hit movies, but they've got a name brand and we can do something cheap. And we can, you know, make our money back just based on the title. And, of course, the amazing draw of, of Corey Feldman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, and The Lost Boys, just to shout out that is that, that was a big film, the original one for me, back because of when it was released. I have two films that I still have on VHS, just kind of to display if nothing else. One is Ghostbusters. Nice. And the other one you'll is Lost Boys. And just, I don't use them, I don't watch them, but I just think they're kind of cool just to have on the shelf as a representative of that VHS era. Yeah. Um, they are both films that I probably watched you know, 200 times back when I was that age. So, yeah, it carried a little bit of something with me. Maybe a Lost Boys sequel five years later would have carried a lot more excitement. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think too much has changed. I think part of the appeal of the Lost Boys is the 80s aesthetic. As much as everybody laughs at the greasy saxophone guy in the Lost Boys, he is part of the appeal, that weird 80s aesthetic. Um, And it did have a bit of a sense of humor to it. It was both fun and funny and scary. And I guess there's times in the tribe, the Lost Boys, the tribe, where I feel like they're trying to do that. But it isn't over-cheesy and full of 80s pastiche, and it isn't particularly funny, and it isn't particularly scary. Uh, A brother and sister have moved back to the same town, Santa Carla, from the original film. They've been recently orphaned. Their parents died in a car accident. So they're going to rent a house from their quirky uh, comic relief aunt and get to know this new town. The sister very quickly gets roped into this surf gang led by Angus Sutherland, half brother of Kiefer Sutherland. Um you can tell the two apart because Kiefer Sutherland can act. Uh the <laughs> <laughs> That's There's the... something about there's something about his bored, disinterested voice during it... the whole film that i he has a couple of small credits before this and a couple of small credits after this. But I don't know. this. It just feels like he was offered the part to make, like, make some weird connection to the first movie. And I think he's going for cool in the way that the lines come out of his mouth. But they do. They come off board. It's like he's over being a vampire. It's not fun to live forever, <laughs> according to him. And that's unfortunate because the whole vibe they're going for, I got a real point-break vibe, actually. Like, these vampires like to surf and like to party, and the fact that they were vampires just facilitated them doing that, you know, more. But I don't really see the lure of him. Uh, I, I, I don't find him particularly attractive, so I don't understand what the sister sees in him, and I don't understand him, like, wanting to hang out with this guy, like... I know he was supposed to be a big surfer back in the day, but within a few hours of them meeting each other He's punched him in the face for daring to talk to his sister (laughs) And there's no chemistry between any of the three leads at all So that puts the weight of the the movie on the shoulders of Corey Feldman Corey Feldman was amusing in the original film because uh, as scripted the film was originally meant for a much younger cast when they updated the movie for, like, a teenage audience, they updated the script for everybody except the Frog Brothers. So it's kind of amusing that the Frog Brothers have 12-year-old dialogues, but they're, like, 18 and 19 years old in the, car- in the movie. It kind of makes them charming. But the older that you are and the more that you're acting like a Frog Brother, the more sad, I think, that you become. And this is sort of the overarching feeling that I have going on. Like, this movie shouldn't have been made, and even even that it was made, it didn't it didn't do enough to justify its existence, even in the very so-so realm of direct-to-video sequels. So I'm not sure if it's coming across, but I'm not a huge fan of The Lost Boys, The Tribe. Where do you land? Uh,
1: very similar. Uh, I tried to watch... This was the first-time view of it. I've, it's been one of those films I've kind of avoided not on purpose just felt there was no reason for it to exist and I thought yeah, it's probably not going to be really great uh, I ended up finding a cheap copy of it so I thought you know what Let, let's watch it if nothing else for this podcast <laughs> now,
0: the, the best way to watch it I guess is take the Lost Boys out of it
1: because you know going in it's not going to stand up to your memories of the original Lost Boys from 20 30 whatever um <clears throat> And and no, it doesn't. Now on its own, it's it's way different. It's way more. This is R rated. Yeah. The Lost Boys was about was a PG movie. This as soon as it starts, it's uh, in the excessive swearing. There's nudity and and there's some actual decent blood and gore in this film as well.
0: That's one all thing I was going to give it things. points for. They're all good things to have in a
1: horror or a vampire movie, but it doesn't feel like a Lost Boys movie. Um, on its own, and that's what I thought. I'm gonna try and watch this just as a vampire movie. And on its own as a vampire movie, it's not terrible as far as vampire movies go. But honestly, the worst parts about it are any moment where I feel it tries to tie itself back to the original Lost Boys characters. Right. And and yeah, that includes Mr. Corey Feldman. And I, and I like the guy. He was, he was he was he was Tommy Jarvis. He was in the Goonies, for crying out loud. But <laughs> Oh, yeah. The the whole movie kind of changes when he's when he's around and he's using his ramble voice. He's just too old to do this now. And you're right; it seemed, it felt kind of you know, it's kind of grating, but it also felt sort of sad. Um, otherwise, it's uh, mostly it's kind of a grisly movie at times, but it's very yeah, sometimes it gets a little cheesy. They're not sure if they want to be funny or or scary, and and it kind of ends up being neither. Um, I mean, it, it's an, it's an okay ninety minute
0: watch. Yeah, but. It, it, I have watched way worse movies. You're true. Uh, you're right. And if they'd called this "Surf Vampires" or something else, maybe I would be less bothered by some of the stuff in it. But. No, uh it it does not work for me and the stuff that calls attention to itself actually actively takes you out of the movie. There's a scene where they uh hang a bunch of antlers up on the wall of the cabin and not only yeah. was that a reference to the original Lost Boys, but you totally knew that there was going to be a vampire spiked on those <laughs> antlers and very quickly like a half an hour later that actually happens and I don't know. Maybe the, if the movie was trying to make a, a a joke about that, about how obvious they were being, that would be what they weren't. As far as the whole idea of vampires and sex and violence, yes, this movie delivers. It opens with a cameo from Tom Savini. Uh, but yeah. uh, Sorry? When, when,
1: when I saw Tom Savini there, I kind of settled down in my seat a little bit because I went in with not great expectations but I like to give every movie that I'm going to sit with for an hour and a half I want to give it a chance because I, my time's precious to me I want to enjoy the movie I'm about to watch so I, I give it a chance but still a little hesitant I saw Tom Savini I thought Well, oh, hey look that's Tom Savini this might be okay <laughs> his name's attached to it I mean not everything he touches is gold but, nope. um, but it was nice to see him for a little while and uh, the, the violence got ramped up Pretty quickly with uh, with him
0: on screen. Yeah, I could see what they were going for. Like, on paper, I can see that, that scene works. This guy has a really nice beachfront house, and these guys are trespassing, and he comes out to shoo them away. And uh, when they don't, he suddenly vamps out, and we think, okay, here comes our big opening kill. But then the surfers also vamp out, <laughs> and uh, he, he gets decapitated and taken out of the movie very very quickly now it was nice to see Tom Savini but I guess in that weird way even though it was a little bit wonky that promised a more energetic exciting movie than the one that we actually ended up getting but there are there are scenes that work you know uh that that gyrating vampire in the bikini that lures him at the party you understand why he would be lured by that you know um You get it on a basic, you know, sex and violence level. This film does, I guess, deliver in a direct-to-video way. But I never got over the feeling that this was more about making money than about entertaining people. There's also a little weird meta reference. The Ant, who's like the comic relief, uh keeps on showing up at inopportune times and and trying to ingratiate herself to them and she rents the goonies and she goes on this big rant about you guys haven't seen the goonies which is weird because if the goonies exists in the this world like Corey Feldman is in the goonies right it becomes this weird yeah. meta thing like and well why that choice why that deliberate a distracting <laughs> like Let's take people right out of this movie, even before Feldman has shown up. I just don't understand it. Was it his choice? Did he insist that we need the Goonies in this movie? <laughs> is, is he to plug the Goonies. He wants to get a, a 35 or 40 year direct-to-video sequel to the Goonies happening, and this is his way of putting a line in the water? <laughs> I don't know.
1: Maybe. And it's that other thing where we talked about uh, movies where they remind you of other better movies that you'd rather be watching.
0: Right some sad fact about this movie. Apparently the other frog brother had a scene in this movie, but he was cut. And
1: yeah, they show some of it in uh, the deleted scenes or there's something like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I guess he comes back for the third one. Um, And if you stayed for the post credits sequence, did you, did you catch that? Yeah. The late great Corey Haim shows up and there's a suggested final showdown between the, the Corey's. And honestly, if you were going to do this stupid direct-to-video Lost Boys sequel, that should have been the movie.
1: Yeah, as a mid credit scene, I I could do without that. It had nothing to do with the movie or, or any... It was a, yeah. not a very... I don't, I don't know if they were hoping to get the fans excited by that, but... Yeah, it,
0: But if if they had been friends for a long time, but the Corey Haim character had turned into a vampire and the movie was about him having to hunt and kill his former friend... Um, maybe there would have been more stakes, maybe would have been more invested, or maybe we could have locked into the frog thing, as opposed to him being a supposedly funny comic relief sideline character, maybe they should have just gone full bore and made a Cory vampire movie in the early 2000s, and just see if the nostalgia paid off.
1: See, and that's kind of the thing, you talk about calling it, uh, surf vampires, or if you just called it the tribe, and just take off the Lost Boys thing? Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe that wouldn't have worked as well because it does hit all of the Lost Boy beats. You know, gotta kill the head vampire, and uh, you know one of them's turning. It's it, you know the, the theme music as well. You, you have to play that song, that uh, "Cry a Little Sister." But um, so people would say this is just the Lost Boys ripoff. So I guess they go this way. What I think would have been better, since they were going all out R-rated anyways, yeah. take El Corey Feldman. And uh, just make it an
0: R-rated reboot, yeah. rather than a sequel. Just a new Lost Boys story, similar idea, but we're not doing a sequel. Just a new story. And uh... well, I agree with you, but here's my cynical take on that. To me, it was just too late. I think at this point, their choices were: they made a shitty Lost Boys ripoff, they made a shitty Lost Boys sequel, or they made a shitty Lost Boys reboot. Right? Like, it, I think that the time had just come and gone for the Lost Boys. I, Fair I, enough, yeah. I could be wrong. Is there anything else you want to say about the the tribe?
1: Uh, I don't know. If, let me take a look here if I had anything else. Uh, well, I've, there's a couple of scenes that kind of stood out for... Uh, first of all, we, we talked about the opening with Tom Savini. What that really stood out as soon as the movie started was the excessive, I felt swearing, which is weird for me to say because I'm not a prude that doesn't like, you know, coarse language in a movie, but it just seemed so out of place and not the Lost Boys vibe. it just seems so intentional and fake that they were make sure you swear as much as possible during this scene just to show that we're we're unrated we're badass
0: yeah i think uh this just seemed weird this was the late oh i I noticed it It the late 2000s there was about a 10 15 year sort of bubble after you know the peak of quentin tarantino popularity where his influence just became insurmountable it was everywhere and one of the ways you see it was that yeah people got really fuck happy with their dialogue a lot of times if i'm <laughs> giving advice if people want me to read a script or give notes on a script one of the first notes that i will get is to fuck edit. it take half of the f-words out of the script it, it like honestly after a certain point it just loses its power and becomes distracting it's not really fair to put all of it on tarantino but i have noticed it in the post tarantino age that we have become a lot more comfortable with uh, extreme vulgarity and i'm not a prude you know that about me but it does become distracting <laughs> fuck it i'm there's no fucking way but uh it does. It gets it gets tiresome after a while and distracting. It feels less real somehow.
1: Yeah, and there's uh, another scene where uh, it was uh, the initiation for I can't remember his name main character to join the tribe. Um, in the original, they were you know hanging off of the bridge. Remember it falling one by one, and the whole scene where we're eating, they're eating Chinese food. And he says, "How's your worms? You're eating maggots or right. whatever it was." And this one here, it was a pointless. Skateboard,
0: motorcycle, police chase. That's right. And we have to outrun the. We have to outrun the police, and it, it just seemed
1: like it had nothing to do with anything, and there's there's no safe involved.
0: Well, that yeah, was just the yeah. sort of extreme sports, skateboarding, surfing, point break thing that I was talking about. They seem much more into yeah. like these adrenaline junkie shit than the previous incarnation of them.
1: See, it was stuff like that, and you know, Corey Feldman showing up saying, "Who ordered the steak?" Uh... And, you know.
0: Boy, we were supposed to have a big laugh over that, but it's, it's it, I don't know. Does, does... Those
1: are the points to kind of take me out. On its own, if you, I, I don't watch, I guess vampire movies aren't my biggest section of my, uh, my horror area, but uh, as he said, it, it's not the worst 90 minutes I've ever spent. But
0: uh... Is Feldman in on the joke, though, do you think? Does he think it's funny, or does he legit think this character is cool and awesome? because i started off thinking that he was doing it deliberately funny and by the end of the movie i thought he was like legitimately a believer
1: (laughs) i think it would be funny as you said if he was 12 or or 14 yeah 15 when they made the sequel
0: the older he gets the less funny it Uh, loses something now yeah Uh,
1: here in a well how old would he have been in this film in his
0: 40s well into his 40s i think yeah Uh, yeah
1: Yeah, it's it's
0: not as cute anymore. No. Alas. With a terrifying discovery deep beneath the city.
1: That egg is one of thousands underground. The tale of horror continues. They adapt. That's how we made them. They don't have to be any bigger or stronger. So they got smarter.
0: Hello and welcome to the Bunker Review of Mimic 3, or Mimic Sentinel, from director J.T. Petty. Um, I've talked about J.T. Petty on the podcast before. I have liked some of his uh, other movies. Um, He wrote and directed a movie called Hellbenders, which is just an uncelebrated gem of a horror comedy, about priests who have to live in sin in order to do battle with demons and they have to like violate commandments and and, and make sure that they're not saved they have to be hellbound great fun movie he uh wrote and directed the burrowers uh, he did an interesting movie called Sandman. just i'm a fan of jt petty and his work has remained somewhat unsung I mean, there's people who like him, but I just feel like he's—he's he's not a big a genre star as he should be, especially as a writer director. So, um, this is early, and it's you know another Miramax direct-to-video sequel. Mimic made money in the theater, so they're gonna hire JT Petty to go to somewhere Europe and to film a a, a Mimic sequel. And I guess the script which he was given was. Loosely based off of Rear Window, which is a, a an Alfred Hitchcock film. <clears throat> I have seen this movie before, but it has been so long that my memory of it isn't clear. Isn't that clear? But I have seen the Hitchcock picture subsequently. With what Jeremy Jeremy Store and and and, and, and 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 he's looking out the back window of his apartment complex at the other windows, and he sees sinister goings on. I don't remember any mutated cockroaches that could mimic human beings eating people in that particular movie but that is supposed to be the inspiration for mimic 3 or mimic Sentinel so I'm going to be watching it again Uh, it feels so foreign to me that it will be like watching it for the first time and I invite you to join me so 23 minutes and 25 seconds into the film which is incredibly almost a third of the way into this it's a very short movie um, I thought I would check in and let you guys know <laughs> where I'm at. Um, first of all, uh, with regards to the cast of the movie, um, I was happy and surprised to see that Lance Henriksen is in this movie. I am a big supporter of Lance Henriksen. <laughs> I mean, it, his presence doesn't guarantee quality, but he's just a face that just warms me. You know, I just like seeing the guy. I, you know, I'm I'm always on Team Henriksen. Um, there's this actress who I've always found. I must confess very attractive named Rebecca Mater. I know her from lost and just a handful of other things I've seen her in, but this will be a very early performance from her. Um, I don't remember if it's her first movie or whatever, but my guess is it's gotta be pretty early in her career. Um, and then we have the strange Amanda Plummer. I've, i I'm a fan of hers, but I do think that she's someone you have to be careful how you cast. She's a bit of a live wire. I feel like she's always at 11 out of 10, you know. Um, but so far, as I've seen her, she seems to be uh, a little bit distracted or a checked-out mom. I don't know if it's she's just spent so much time worrying about her son that she's sort of in a depression or a trance over it, or if there's another card to be played, if there's some addiction going on. Like I say, I, I have very, very vague memories of the movie. Um, so far, the only real tangible connection to the... Hitchcock picture, which you know is is way too tough a thing to hang on this movie the The rear window connection is that uh this kid who's got a lot of uh allergies and uh sort of sensitivities is sort of stuck inside and he has this habit of photographing his neighbors in this back lot behind the apartment and he's been doing so for something like ten years. He just takes pictures and pictures and pictures of everybody he sees and the first thing that happens in the movie and i will give it points for this is a little kill kid gets killed by a mimic bud he doesn't see it happen he sees the kid disappear into the mouth of an alley but the kid never returns and he sees missing posters of the kid so he smells a rat and 23 minutes and 25 seconds in we've already had our second kill as well very similar to how the kid was handled it was just sort of a quick flash of the bug a quick flash of the victim and some blood in the rain but uh that's sort of saving the monster, um, you know. I'm sort of feeling the low budget here, and uh but I'm still sort of cheering for JT Petty. I can see him trying to keep to the spirit and the vibe of the original Mimic movie, which you know was was directed by Guillermo del Toro. That's a tough act to follow, and he had a budget compared to this. So there is something artful about the approach to the first kill, and like yeah, it's a little kid, and that's sort of like a bold move. We're starting out that anybody's fair game. The first movie, Mimic, killed kids as well. In that movie, I found it much more surprising because I wasn't used to seeing kids go out in a horror movie, especially in a mainstream picture, and it, it's sort of like after they've been well-established and kind of made cute and likable that they did it. So this movie doesn't pull the exact same trick, but it is, in its direct-to-video, low-budget way, trying to connect itself firmly in the mimic universe i also think that the sort of choice to keep it in a relatively one location much like rear window helps the sort of low budget of the movie once they find the apartment once they find the back of the apartment complex that they're going to use largely all of the production would be in one place which is exceedingly helpful in keeping things you know under control and in budget but so far i must say for a low budget direct to video sequel i'm I'm finding it interesting enough uh, so far. The supporting players are more interesting than our leads, but that might be just because I recognize them. I know where they've ended up subsequently. The two leads, the brother and sister, I don't recognize from anything at all. But uh, let's let's see where we go with the mimicry. So, the film was actually shot, as I am learning here, <clears throat> in Bucharest, Lithuania. Or Romania, pardon me, Bucharest, Romania, um, which I think must have added another layer of, deep, of difficulty for this low-budget film for J.T. Petty, because imagine when you're filming there, you know, you're mandated to have a percentage of local crew and local component that would uh, probably not speak the language super well, which, you know, makes the already complicated process of low-budget filmmaking that much more complicated. Um, Another actor John Capilano showed up in this movie the another face that uh, I guess I didn't recognize the name in the credits But I definitely recognize his face John Hughes fans breakfast club fans will know him as the janitor from the breakfast club He is playing the uh, investigating officer and as it turns out love interest to Amanda Plummer's character Um, There's something too good about this romance. So that's got to get broken one or both of those people are definitely going to die And um, we're now getting into the sequence where we're really in full-on Hitchcock territory. Um, There's a transition scene where we go through an eye hole to the other side of a door, which is very reminiscent of a, quote, Hitchcock sort of cut and transition, which I noticed and appreciated. And a slow, long pan through a grisly crime scene or monster scene uh, where we see the slow aftermath and we have to sort of imagine what happened is a surprising piece of restraint for a movie called Mimic 3 Sentinel. It may need, it may not be what people want out of a, you know, bug monster movie, but I appreciate him, you know, trying that. And right now, as I pause at 41 minutes and 55 seconds into this film, we're, we're getting right into the classic sort of sequence, where, you know, he's got his friends investigating the rooms across the way and he can see them through the lens of his camera. But they're in peril, and he's got to find ways to warn them. And uh, as I was watching this, I couldn't help but think, didn't The Simpsons do this? Is this not just stealing from The Simpsons? Wait a minute. In all seriousness, I guess I think I'm liking the movie more than I was expecting to. Again, uh, low standards, low budget, uh, sequel to a reasonably w- well remembered, sort of at least original film mimic. Uh, definitely has its defenders it's not Guillermo's favorite film of the stuff he's done but I like the idea of bugs that look like people and uh, as they're calling him the villain in this movie the garbage man um, I I guess this garbage man figure is is our bug is what we're going for so Um, it's it's all right I mean you know is it the most necessary sequel no and do you set yourself up for a fall you know putting yourself comparing yourself to Hitchcock or the Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, maybe you do. But so far, so fun. So there was Mimic 3 Sentinel. Um, it, I noticed it was written and directed by J.T. Petty, so this wasn't even a script that they gave him. They gave him a budget, a location, and like write and direct Mimic 3. So it was his choice to do the Hitchcock thing. Some of the things that might make me recognize it as J.T petty is that it's actually in the third act pretty ruthless with some of its characters there were characters that i expected to see go who went and there were some really bad things that happened to characters that uh uh, i was expecting to come out relatively unscathed um the kind of very end end of the movie kind of brings character backs that we kind of dismissed as dead but uh i'm not sure so sure how i feel about that but i mean it it has a suitably big-by-the-limited-scale-of-the-movie climax, and um, for the most part I'm actually, again, grading on the curve pretty happy overall with the third Mimic movie. Uh, It's certainly not J.T. Petty's finest hour, but I was kind of expecting to have to defend it more than I do. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I think that one of the big things that is hurting the movie And uh, I don't want to be mean about it, but it's the central performance from the main actor. Um, He's supposed to be reacting to his friends being in terrible, terrible peril. His name is Carl Geary, is the actor. He's the guy who's sort of stuck in his room looking through through the camera lens, seeing everything secondhand or just getting glimpses just around the corner. And when people are in serious danger or he is supposed to be terrified, I have to believe that he's either too scared to move or that he thinks that trying to call the police is the best answer. If they're close enough that you can actually see them, they're close enough that you can run and help these characters that you supposedly care about. Something in the performance, the script tells him to stay there, but something in the performance needed to help that, and he really doesn't get us there. Plus, it's just a little bit uncertain, like, what is his deal? Is it just allergies? Is there there agoraphobia? What is his deal? We never really properly get into it. Um, I feel like there might be more to the movie, even though it's short, like if if we got a little bit more into why, the why, and um, it's strange. Um, Amanda Plummer turns out interesting in that she never goes full bore crazy over the top Amanda Plummer like you kind of expect or anticipate. She was fairly held back. The surprise of her character is sort of, well, like they set up the whole love angle, like I said, and uh, neither of the lovers come out of it very, very well. But again, our main character is put in a position where he witnesses his mother not just get, like, impaled by this giant insect, but is also set on fire, and she has this terrible screaming death in front of him. And it's a big twist and a big moment for the movie, and our central character is not selling it for me but there's some cool claustrophobic moments one character gets locked in a trunk and they're trying to get in at her and another character puts himself inside a refrigerator and they're trying to get at him and they work pretty good i mean like i think this is a good example of somebody using a low budget to the best of their abilities you know they did what they could with their budget when we finally do get to see the the mimic creatures flying about they don't look as good but I was right to welcome the presence of Lance Henriksen, uh, the character that he plays is a bit suspicious character. He's a scientist. He knows about the Judas breed, and he's sort of sending warning of a coming Judas bug apocalypse. So these must be other subsequent mimic sequels that they either chose not to afford or just never ended up happening for whatever reasons. But uh, he's just trying to build up a nest egg and get the hell out of town before the bugs take over. And he uh, causes a lot of problems and uh, collateral damage for our characters, but um, um, there's just something I breathe a little easier as soon as he walks on screen. Like, uh, no matter what tough premise he's asked to shoot, no matter what exposition he asks us to sp- spit out, it's always just a little bit better because it's Lance Henriksen. So I stand by that. Um, and I stand by J.T. Petty. Uh, he hasn't done anything for a while. I hope he isn't sort of, you know, hung up his hat because uh i do like him as a genre guy and i believe he's gonna break through he's gonna come out with a really good movie for us so mimic three ain't all of that but it's better than you'd expect it to be you know it's it's rear window with with bugs the whole world knows the story of this house there's ah.
2: ah. activity in the basement something's happening at the well No its terror takes on a new dimension as the horror reaches out
0: beyond the edge of the screen Is anyone in this room gonna be dead before next year? No Amityville 3D. Uh, A couple questions, I guess, just to start for you, Mr. Beckman. Uh, How do you feel about the Amityville "quote" legend or "quote-unquote" true story? And how do you feel about movies that are in 3D? Uh,
2: Well, that's kind of a two-part answer. (laughs) Um, As for the story itself, um, hmm, I don't know. I. i want to believe but the older i get um uh i i I start to doubt certain stories a lot more um there's definitely been a lot said since the passing of both the lutz patriarch and matriarch and how sketchy
0: they were no uh Um, yeah i agree i think i think you, if you want to believe the story, you can. And there is fact, there was a family that got killed in this house. Yeah. Everything about the second family, I think we can conclusively say is fake. <laughs> like, the lawyer said that they came up with the whole thing over a bottle of wine. The author of the book was told that he said he was told just write whatever he wanted and make it scary. <laughs> like, yeah. this does not sound like true accounts to me. There's been this new recent documentary called My Amityville Horror, where the, well, the youngest kid is now coming forward, and it really came across to me as someone who was spent his entire life scared of his stepdad, and now that his stepdad's gone, he's, like, become him, to the point that he's trying to make money out of the Amityville thing. Uh, that's my problem with Amityville, is, like, usually anybody talking about Amityville, they have a tell when they're full of shit, and their mouth is moving yeah so uh, I'm not connected to that oh my god this is grounded in the real world and that's really going to be helpful for Amityville 3D yeah Uh, Yeah. what I what I don't have here in a realistic way even though the the DVD I have tries is the 3D I tried to watch it with the grainy 3D and the glasses I confess I just went back to the regular version to watch the movie I I actually found it was taking me out of the (laughs) movie so
2: yeah yeah, well, th- the opening credits are quite hilarious because it keeps on having that tree, bench, tree branch like sort of tap against the screen or something. Yeah. Uh, and I just kind of went, uh-oh, <laughs> this is not a good sign. But at the same point, um, and this is talking about, you know, they, they were working with the technology on, on what they had. You know, like even like like I watched Jurassic Park recently uh, on TV, and that's
0: 1996. 93. And uh, and it's starting to show its age, its
2: age a little bit. The the CGI still looks good in the dark, and I to this day it looks a lot more realistic when it's done at night. But some of the dinosaurs during the day
0: look very computerized. They look now, animated, yeah. Yeah. Now this is like
2: this isn't Deep Blue Sea bad or Escape from LA bad, but I mean it looks dated. So you, know, so for me, you know, I guess for some people that kind of go, man, that looks dumb, it looks fake. I just kind of go, you know, you need to give the film a bit of a break because this was the technology at the time.
0: I and will was... accommodate the movie for the effect shots that they were trying to do for the three D enhancements. The yeah. same way I complained about this talking about Friday the thirteenth in three D. There yeah. are gags that are clearly just being done for the benefit of the three D, and when yeah. you're not watching it in three D, all these gags do is slow down the movie. That sure. was it's just true. It's just true. But yeah. I, I'm not gonna use that as a real whipping stone to, to hit the movie with. Yeah. I'll actually say a couple things about this movie because it was hated when it came out. And yeah. I'm I'm not overall positive on it. But I think it actually starts okay. Uh, Okay. I like them sort of introducing uh, the main characters, sort of exposing these frauds that have been staying in the house. Interestingly, not being fucked with by the ghosts, apparently. Yeah. But uh, that we establish that we have a skeptical character, which is why he has no problem buying the house for cheap. A lot of people, again, when the movie came out, had a real issue with this guy why would you buy that house and again when you're fighting a movie on that level why did you buy your ticket i mean if you're gonna say why are they living in this haunted house (laughs) like well why did you buy a ticket to watch people uh, a movie about people living in a haunted house you're
2: just you're just being a dick at that point apparently the the lead character is based off a, a, a real person who and i think his name was stephen kaplan i i could be wrong but there was this uh, individual who, when the Lutzes were alive, uh, and the Lutzes actually tried to phone him first to convince him to, you know, make their story more authentic and or believable. And he did the reverse. Like, he actually spent a good portion of his career trying to prove the Lutzes was a hoax. Right. Um, so they based this character off that individual. Yeah. Um. Which I thought was an interesting angle. So I agree with you. I thought it started off on a a good note.
0: And for the the record, at this point, the DeFeo family had been killed in that house. At this point, probably 10 or 15 years before. And the one family that had lived in the house lived there for one month and fled. But nobody had died. Yep. So, like, really, I don't feel like it's there there's real a lot of a lot of heat to the argument how dare they decide to live in the house yeah. the problem does start once they get to exploring the house and weird strange sort of is it a continuous thing like it, they couldn't directly reference apparently legally things that happened in the previous movies but they could use the name Amityville so <laughs> it's a sequel but it isn't this whole well at the bottom of the house is a new creation yep yeah. um so it it feels other than the house I guess a little bit adjacent from it and the 3D is slowing things down Uh, I like that we have a skeptical character in the sort of heart of the movie I think that his 80s permed hair is kind of hilarious but I get over it yeah, um, and there's some sort of warm distractions to the left and right. I like Candy Clark alike a lot. I think she's always been this warm presence in horror movies, and she almost no. always gets extinguished. <laughs> you yeah. know, this movie certainly no ex- exception. Um, yeah. And of course, an early uh, role for Meg Ryan and uh, Laurie McLaughlin. Is it? I
2: think it's Laurie Lawton. Laurie
0: Lawton. L- uh, who was recently the big controversy about this? you know university scams or whatever but yeah uh, she
2: got caught with her hand in the cookie jar
0: whoops uh, or, or buying her her daughter into the school or whatever it was yeah anyway uh both of them no names at the time that this movie came out and now watching it today you're like oh look how young they are and look at them uh yeah. in a lot of ways meg ryan's character is kind of a difficult one in that she's the character who does everything wrong Oh, you live in the ghost house. Let's have a seance there. Let's explore. Let's push our luck as far as possible. But I don't know if it was because it was her or just because she was well-performed. I I, kind of went with it in a way that maybe I would have fought in in another with another character, another actress. Yeah,
2: no, Uh, this this script. And the problems do lie with the, with the the script, yeah, because the actors are really I think they're trying hard. They have to swallow some pretty bad lines. So I give the actors credit for working with what they had.
0: Okay, and, but, I, and I have for the record run out of positive things to say. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, this movie, like a lot of horror films, suffers from, I would like to say smart people doing incredibly stupid things. It, like even like in movie logic i mean this house has known for like the brutal murders and even though they can't mention by names the, you know the let's family the let's family fleeing after a month so what's a good idea let's have a seance on that specific house yeah good idea folks and what could possibly go wrong and so, there's
0: yeah. there's weird strained family dynamics like uh, the the main character has a broken Marriage, but, uh, you know, uh, trying to maintain a good relationship and a shared connection with his daughter. His okay. daughter ends up drowning, but beside the side of the house, uh, not that I expected everyone to live through the movie, but I kind of thought that character was going to have more of a card to play in the movie than she ended up having.
2: No, really?
0: Uh, well, I just, I mean, not that I was shocked. I just, I just thought there would be more to it. Yeah. She, she drowned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, we and we see her ghostly sort of drenched form, but in a weird way, this drowning of the daughter—it's almost portrayed as the thing that's going to repair the relationship with his wife. Which, yeah, I feel yeah. like if anything, that would be the opposite. Their their already broken relationship would be hereby the only thing that they have keeping them to connected would have been their daughter, and with her loss. Well, yeah, but.
2: Look, we see them walking off together, but you know, time would march on. I don't see those two getting together. No. You know, staying together. Uh, and poor Tess, Tess Harper, she's like, she's given not a lot to work with. Uh, it, it's it, her character is sort of like one note, and that is bitter and bitter and bitchy. Really, I'm angry.
0: I'm worried. I'm sad. Yeah, she's so, a completely reactive character, but she doesn't have any. She doesn't really do much other than. Express her feelings of I'm not happy with how things are yeah. and I guess you can empathize with that, but We also no, have like, Robert joy showing up as this uh, I guess parapsychologist Yeah, no the, the genre favorite Robert joy. It was good good to see him and once again talking about smart people doing stupid things He might win yes. the prize for that in this movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's let's like kneel right by the spectral toxic demonic well and
0: say we have to draw it out and what could possibly go wrong well and there's one thing you know being eager and excited by it even having that eclipse your fear but like by this point they've seen enough fucked up stuff that like they there's reason to believe this is not a friendly force yeah (laughs) yeah And, and uh you know do something to protect yourself just in case have something to hang on to in case i don't know some creature comes and tries to drag you into the well <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, just like, like, basic precautions basic quote-unquote scientific precautions <laughs> and that and again that's where the movie's kind of like yeah it gets hilarious the get real her estate Ray, agent having her. Like, yeah that's exactly right it reminded me of ghostbusters when they they try to tackle the ghost in the library because they have no plan at all that that was robert joy in this movie yeah. And, and it also just had things that, like, the real estate agent dying of a heart attack, it felt yeah. like this movie's version of the priest being attacked by the flies. Yeah. Like, it just didn't feel new enough. Yeah. Um, and, like, maybe that's the thing, the fact that his real estate agent had a heart attack in that house. Oh, yeah. oh that's an omen. That's a bad omen. Well, he's a skeptical guy. He doesn't believe in bad omens. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you could get, uh, you know, a, a huge house for, like, a third its market value that's a that's that's a real that's a real boon (laughs) oh yeah yeah. no i i think
2: my biggest gripe of this film well one it's like it's really aiming for the teenage crowd yeah um and that means that you can maybe get away with stupid stuff but to the other casual viewer you're like no no wait a minute no (laughs) um there are too many characters in, in this movie. I feel if they really just focused on the pathos and the, and the dynamic of the family, yeah. then the emotional payoffs that the film wants you to feel as by the third act, you would feel, but because we've crammed this film with,
0: uh, you, you know, the lead characters, um, work partner and a bunch of superfluous teenagers yeah yeah i like candy clark and and she does arguably have the best death of the movie but you're right if she was edited out of the movie i don't know how much it would have lost
2: well yeah exactly like and i like candy clark as well and what she does in the movie like one of my favorite sequences in that film is when she's Uh, publishing the photos and looking at at them closely and he sees that demonic fly with that monster head in it that made me giggle and go oh okay she's good in the movie but yeah like you could take her out of that movie and it would affect nothing of the overall narrative and same and same with the real estate agent he's introduced and we know right away that oh he's going to be dead within the first half an hour of the movie and And his
0: death doesn't have any impact in the movie like it doesn't you know it doesn't i guess it's just something that can be scary early in the movie i suppose but like uh we didn't care about him we we predicted it and you know there was no it was kind of by the numbers and i guess that's what it feels like to me i i I came in soft on it just because I, i was looking at reviews to period of this movie and I yeah. felt like people were like aggressively, hostily, like, like belligerently shitty to it. Yeah. I just think it's it's kind of lame. It's, it's kind of meh. Like I have watched way worse movies than this. Oh, no. The,
2: I agree with you. Like I, I, I don't think it's the train wreck that a lot of these hyperbolic uh, online movie reviewers, or even journalist movie reviewers, make it out to be. But it's also incredibly dumb.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, um, it's meant it's to dead, be forgotten. Like, the fact that we're still talking about it this many years later is, well, it's, it's kind of crazy, to be honest. <laughs> like, yeah. it deserves its obscurity. But, like, it doesn't deserve to be this hated thing. And, yeah. and again, Candy Clark's death. Like, she's had two very memorable horror movie deaths to me. Like, uh, they it, use the 3D to make you think she's going to get speared by the pole. It comes crashing through the windscreen, but it doesn't skewer her. It just pins her in the car, and then the car starts on fire, and she cooks in it. Yeah. Like, that sucks, girl. And we liked her, and she did everything right. Same like in in, in The Blob. She was friendly. She gave the kids a free meal. She had a crush on the friendly sheriff, and she gets killed for no good reason.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, and she has that great scene where she's utterly terrified in the house, and and then our lead character comes into the house and she's like, "Don't touch me, man!" Yeah,
0: like, she's
2: like, she gives her all and makes it really convincing and runs out of the house screaming. So she
0: like, I she, cared like, about her character more than any of the other ones. I don't know if it's just because I like that actress, but I it's just a true statement.
2: <laughs> well, no, like she's she's given some really good things to do in the movie. It's it's just you on, like, it's just sad that you could honestly cut out our narrative yeah. and it, it it wouldn't change anything
0: just make the movie it, shorter that's all
2: <laughs> yeah well like they could beef it up with a lot more focus on the family like you look at a film like poltergeist like yeah. which i'm sort of come you know that, that's the sort of high watermark we spent a, like the first quarter of that movie we spent a lot of time with the family getting to know them getting to know the relationships between them and and you know slowly the supernatural stuff starts to come one by one and then it really explodes and if they would fo- focused on that element that you know we've got this family that is you know splitting up but you know they still love each other especially you know they, they love, like their main focus is their daughter and spoilers when she's murdered aka drowned we kind of go, ah. Oh. But if, if we had more time with her, and especially away from her, you know,
0: Or her, if the movie her... was using the themes of grief or if it was using the themes of this broken family. But yeah. really, it's a wanting to be, a, after all of this darkness and the family being ruined, it wants to be a popcorn fun jump scare movie. Yeah. And it doesn't really succeed at being any of those things particularly well. But no. I just want just, to just lower the temperature of the hate it's watchable if you want to watch an amityville movie this is another one but do not get excited about it do not overpay for it it's when people used to channel surf it would be like if you bumped into it while you were channel surfing maybe that was the day fate decides that you're watching amityville 3 but uh it's it's you know what shall we do it can we give it it's it's fine it's it's fine
2: (laughs) i also I, i also think it was also a reactionary uh, to make it a little more palatable considering what number two is.
0: Well, that went to sort of the teeth and tissue of the actual crime, the origin well, of the house.
2: Not only that, but number two is a nasty, nasty
0: movie. Right. Like, this one wants it, it, to no, be more fun in spite of the darkness it's talking, it's playing in. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, there's a whole incest storyline that is just, it's gross and icky. Yeah. And you leave that movie just, just kind of gutted a little bit. So to go the opposite direction where yeah it's going to be a horror movie but you'll you know, jump boo scares but it's going to be it, it's trying to be light and fun like we have a conversation with Nick Ryan saying I wonder what's it like to have sex with ghosts and I'm just like <laughs> okay I've
0: seen the entity and uh, by that portrayal not not super good actually no
2: no no it's not
0: uh, but anyways
2: yeah. I agree with you by that rationale it's fine Um, I think it's for horror movie aficionados, and I think it's for Amityville completists. Um, I don't think it's the worst movie in the series, either.
0: Yeah, but... uh, Julia, good enough. Boom. It was supposed to be a fun road trip.
1: Ah! Ah! Where are we? You're on private property. Town's about a mile that way. Now, they're stranded in a desolate town. You people look a little lost.
0: Is there a tow truck service? Nope. We are also looking for some friends in a convertible.
2: We don't get a whole lot of tourists in here. They've been told to leave. I want you on that 8 a.m. bus out of here. You got it? Right. Right. Right.
0: Okay. Now what?
2: But someone doesn't want them to go. No! and for them to stay alive they must discover the
1: secret
0: of this town's dark mystery and look evil in the face i warn you sheriff children of the corn vibe it seems like there would be a percentage of safety going into the production of a movie like children of the corn five fields of terror i mean at this point you're selling the franchise on the basis of the name stephen king it's not the strength of the series necessarily there's no star attached to it i i continue to be confused by the fact that of all the hundreds literally hundreds of short stories that stephen king has written and the many many adaptations that Children of the Corn somehow gets this ridiculously, seemingly endless series of franchises and remakes and reboots. And just, I don't understand why. On many levels, I don't understand why. I mean, I suppose one would say it's easy and fairly cheap to find a small town to, to double as your, you know, sort of farm community that's besieged by these cult children and you know other than some you know visceral sort of stabby violence um and whatever you however you choose to interpret this corn god he who walks behind the rose it's minimal demands on a production end and a sci-fi end depending on how you choose to cut the idea of the story the thing that people find creepy seems to be that children will be a physical threat to adults. Um, I don't know if it's me, I'm a fairly big fellow, but I, I've never felt the threat threat from these types of movies. It's what I sort of call the Chucky problem. When the adversaries are too small, if I'm not physically threatened by them, the, the fear level goes down a little bit. And it's based off of an interesting short story. This is not a hit against the story itself, the, Stephen King wrote a short story about a very, very unhappy, very, very unpleasant married couple. You get the feeling like they're at the very end of their relationship that inadvertently hit a child on the road outside this cornfield. Upon investigation, they see that the child was already mortally wounded and that he was chased out onto the road by what it turns out to be a cult of children. When you get to be a certain age... You have to sacrifice, or you are sacrificed, to the god of the corn. And um, the at the end of the first movie, because of all the failures that's gone on, the year of the sacrifice was dropped by uh, a full year. So I think instead of 18, it went down to 17 or something like this. But like I said, uh, this is the fifth chapter in, and they're not taking too going too deeply from the original at this point. They're basically just taking the concept and the location and throwing a bunch of young characters at it. A small cast uh, comes into this town, they're looking for friends, they were all supposed to meet there, and two of them have conspicuously gone missing. We know as the audience that they were killed uh, in the fields when the very first arrived. It takes a good while for our new company of actors to sort of find this out. Some of the fun in looking back at sort of old horror sequels or franchise sequels even if they're sort of mid-range or maybe a little lesser like maybe this one is is sort of seeing faces that if we're not famous then would become famous this movie offers both Uh, Alexis Arquette uh, who actually recently passed away plays one of the main characters of the movie. This is before uh, she had transitioned into a woman, but he's sort of a rich, interesting career. He, you know, came out of the Arquette da- dynasty. He's got that memorable one-scene role in, in Pulp Fiction, and, uh, you know, he's sort of an interesting character. And here he is, very young, you know, you know, in a very different phase in, in, in the life story of Alexis Arquette. So that's kind of interesting to see. And it's the very first movie from Eva Mendes. And um, she's, you know, it's her first movie, and you can tell she doesn't suck, but she's she's got tough material, especially her character has a lot of hard work to do. And, you know, the first time out. But um, the genre of movies have been pretty good to her, you know. She did Urban Legends Final Cuts and she did uh, well, Ghost Rider. And, um, you know, once time... Temp- once upon a time in Mexico. She's kind of disappeared recently, but I mean, I've always liked Eva Mendez, and, uh, you know, everybody starts somewhere. It's cool to see her face. Um, as far as people who are established, sort of cool genre faces to see, we have Sir Kane Hodder. He of, you know, Jason Voorhees, and he of, you know, the Hatchet franchise. It's a small role, but, you know, horror fans are going to appreciate that. Um, sort of. Out of left field, but more out of the '70s black exploitation realms. Fred Williamson, you know, Black Caesar. People would recognize him in, in from uh, from Dusk Till Dawn as the the war veteran who has that hilarious monologue. Um, David Carradine, who is in a million decent and even more not so decent horror genre, kung fu, whatever movies. Um, here he is. In this movie again, which should be good news. Another stolid genre face that we can all celebrate being there. His presence is the most mystifying possibly because, like, not only what are you doing in this movie, Mr. Carradine, other than, you know, quick money, he doesn't have a lot of scenes, but his character doesn't make sense in the whole setup of the Children of the Corn. This guy somehow is, at least at the. We're led to believe for the first part of the movie, Um, a leader figure or a prophet figure to the children and the whole basis of the story is that the children reject nothing can stay pure after it's been on earth too long so having this like middle aged man or this old man you know giving them advice or or bowing to him in any kind of way just seemed against the stories that the whole universe of children of the corn had set up but you know, with all of this in mind, going in as a you know a low-budget filmmaker making yet another sort of cheap sequel to Children of the Corn, I mean, was the safety just that Stephen King's name's on it, people will watch it? Like, how silly and how sort of factory-stamped a product can we possibly make before people stop showing up? Well, I showed up. I guess I'm one of these crazy people. But of all the things that I can sort of get frustrated or impatient with, with Children of the Corn Five, Fields of Terror, is that despite all of those names and all those interesting faces and all those people that I just mentioned, the bulk of the heavy lifting in the acting category is given to a maybe eight or nine-year-old kid named Adam Wiley. He plays the character of Ezekiel, and he is supposedly... The big bad, the big muscle, the sort of, you know, (laughs) the, the adversary, the one we really want to see pay. And he is a child. (laughs) Big problem for low budget filmmaking and filmmaking in general. If you have a a story or a script or, or, you know, a, a story where a character is a child that is very important to your story, like you're rolling the dice with a child actor. I find either it works or it doesn't. There's, like, very rarely just a so-so kid actor. I find, like, either I believe the kid or I don't. I know the kid's trying to be scary and intimidating, but he is not. He's hilariously not. So the stakes of the movie are hard to take seriously. Plus, it's usually human error or, you know, mistakes that get a lot of our our protagonists killed, at least initially, um, before the knives come out in the third act and things start to explode a little bit more i don't know it it starts out with some action and then there's a long wait and then it ends with action there are some okay character beats but it's just hard to take any of this seriously and at the very least we want the payoff of like having some creepiness to the movie or if that's not going to come through how about some you know really decent violence some decent kills but when it comes to children. People get really icked out by really violent kills. So we're not going to be seeing the violence icked out, at least not on our adversaries. at was not in a too visceral a way. And do we want that, you know? What is it about Children of the Corn? Like, why does it get away with it? What goes on? This is an earnest question. I don't have any answers. I mean, here's, 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 a, here's a sample of some dialogue from Children of the Corn 5 fields of terror
1: you've challenged my authority and committed heresy against him that kind of insubordination will not be (laughs) now your sole purpose is to scare away the birds and other women uh, that violate our uh, cornfields. Oh, no!
2: The outsiders are coming.
0: The thing is, is I don't like being an asshole, and I am a fan of Stephen King. But uh, again, pick any other story and make a franchise out of that. Pick, make a Boogeyman franchise. Make a Graveyard Shift franchise. Make a Nightflyer franchise. You know, um, it just—it's it, it, strange to me. Um, within the context of this story, which I should not make Stephen King have to pay any sort of uh, penalty for, because of course he didn't write anything but the concept beyond which they're springing from here, there's some character beats that don't make sense. They're never really clear about why these ki- kids are so bonded together that they're going to stay true to their with their friend and stick it out no matter how many flags go up, no matter how many demonstrable warnings no matter how many things are telling them to stay away before danger happens, they're gonna they're gonna stick with this friend. And uh, if I felt that in the characters through all their behavior and their interactions that they really loved her and wanted to you know help her solve this mystery and find her brother, uh, then I would buy it. But uh, but but I don't. And like I mentioned before, Eva Mendez's character is supposed to actually get romanced and taken in to the cult to where the point that she volunteers to be a sacrifice for he who walks behind the rose. That's kind of interesting concept. It's like an outsider actually get taken in instead of being horrified by it actually kind of feeling like this is their fate that they've found their way to, that this was like their destiny. Uh, And if the screenplay was there and if Eva Mendez maybe was more experienced actress, we could see the layers peeling away and it would make sense. Her decisions would make sense from going from like, you know, shallow, haughty, you know, Let's, you know, just sort of the stereotypical hot chick in the horror movie. We're probably going to see her have sex and she's probably not going to make it to the end credits. Well, we're we're half right. She doesn't make it to the end credits, but it's on her own terms, strangely. That could have been more interesting than the execution. And yes, I mean, when it comes down to the kids attacking, the movie has to make production choices. So they cast older kids, teenagers, some of them looking too old to be children, children of the corn... A, so they can work with them longer because they can only film for so many hours with actual children, and B, so that they're more comfortable doing scenes of violence. And all of these choices hurt the credibility of the story they're trying to tell. The imagery could be strong here, you know. I think, I mean, it's hard to keep the mystery alive five chapters in, but the idea of these kids hiding in these corners of these abandoned buildings and These people showing up unaware and then being spied upon and then lurked the sort of slow realization of, of the trap that they're in and how, you know, maybe the kids individually can't be a threat, but at a large number and being unprepared, you know, there's potential here. There's potential here. How do I feel about the movie? The movie is what it is. It's sort of like if you were into a TV series and you just, your loyalty to the brand kept you watching it, even though you know the series isn't what it used to be and probably won't be. This particular episode isn't particularly worse than the one before it, but by this point you can sense that there's nowhere to go but down. Also, fun fact of the director of this film, um, what's his name let me find out here sorry this is important information and you guys will thank me for me for this when i'm done okay the director of children of the corn five fields of terror mr ethan wiley also directed another sequel from uh, another uh franchise this one called house two the second story and it's memorable for being definitely uh you know A prize-winning crazy 80s movie it is definitely a very insane piece of, of cinema but it's also one of the few haunted house movies which contains geez a crystal skull a zombie cowboy a mutant caterpillar time travel interdimensional travel bill maher john ratzenberger pretty much everything you'd expect to see in a haunted house except you know ghosts also, another fun fact before we shut the door on this *Children of the Corn* review: This is not Alexis Arquette's only Stephen King sequel franchise. Alexis Arquette also showed up in *Sometimes They Come Back Again*, a direct to TV or direct to video sequel to um, *Sometimes They Come Back*. So uh, let's let's all let's all forget that we know that.
1: Got me.
2: We're fine. That's why they built the fence there. be a crash Have you, lost your... ah!
0: you saw it before it actually happened
1: we're alive and so are a lot of other people I keep having these visions I see how the next person's gonna die
0: what do you mean the next person
1: survivors in the accident
0: what if we weren't meant to survive What's going to happen to us? I think we can stop it. The Final Destination. I don't know why that was easier or better than calling it Final Destination 4, which it clearly is. I mean, there is a Final Destination 5, but for whatever reason, somebody in a position of power had the wisdom to call Chapter 4 The Final Destination. This film was directed by David R. Ellis, who actually had already directed one of the Final Destination movies, the second one. And one of the confusing things to me about part four is that the second one, although not being an amazing movie, was I think fairly well handled, most especially the stunt work and the opening catastrophe, which must necessarily set us on our path for you know a main character to have a vision that saves a bunch of people from a cat- catastrophe and so that the power of death itself can one by one hunt these poor sons of bitches down. It's a weird thing. I mean, here's a note on the director, David R. Ellis. He died in 2013 after a very long and storied career, mainly doing stunt work in movies like, I don't know, Game of Death, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 70s, Beastmaster, Airplane 2, the V miniseries, Scarface, Lethal Weapon, Roadhouse. He's good with stunt works and scrappy stuff, and He'd spent a lot of time, when he made his way to being uh, in the director's seat, doing kind of, well, genre entries. He did uh, uh, Final Destination 2 and 4, Cellular, Snakes on a Plane. He did a forgotten ghost movie called Asylum. And my personal favorite that he did was uh, Shark Night 3D. I mean, I have no memory of Homeward Bound 2, so maybe that one is his best. But it's just interesting, because he didn't do, like well, what do you want to say? None of the movies that he directed were going to be winning Oscars, you know? He made, attempted to make at least, crowd-pleasing films. And in his weird, loose, charming way, I was kind of a fan. I know I was the guy who was talking a little bit of shit about Snakes on a Plane and that it was going on for too long and had a bit of an identity crisis and I liked more what the movie wanted to be than what it was, but it did put a smile on my face. And usually, David R. Ellis' movies put a smile on my face, if nothing else, with the notable exception of The Final Destination. The opening catastrophe that starts this film has got to be the weakest in the Final Destination franchise, and it's confusing. I mean, not since that Rosenthal director did Halloween two, which was good, and Halloween Resurrection, which was everything that was not good ever in one movie. It just didn't seem like the same man could be at the helm of these two movies. So too with Final Destination 2, which, if nothing else, was a competent genre entry. 4 is just plugged with terrible characters, unlikable characters, impossible characters, and it doesn't seem to understand or follow the own rules of, of the, the Final Destination franchise has been set up. There's a subplot in this movie, which is on one hand ridiculous, on another hand maybe a potential that they could use to sort of give the, uh, the series a little bit more to work with, because you could wily e. Coyote, some of the characters, and that they, according to the plot of this movie, until it's their turn to die, are essentially immortal. One of the characters who is prepared to meet his fate, actually the actor is Mickletty Williamson. He's one of the few actual actors in this movie. He's known for Bubba from the Forrest Gump movie, but he's been in film forever. He's always good, he's always dependable, and he deserves to be remembered for more than (laughs) Bubba Gump. But um, here he is, and he's trying to kill himself, and he can't. They have decided in this particular version of Final Destination, until death decides it's your turn, that you are immortal. If only they had used that. Instead they just made up that stupid thing, a little element of the plot, and mentioned it and then proceeded to do nothing with it. Ouch. I also think another big part of the problem with Part 4 of Final Destination is the 3D. I think the 3D actively hurts the movie and actively hurts the kills. And if someone wanted to study a movie to tell you why CGI is almost always better, uh, pardon me, <laughs> the, why CGI isn't always worse than practical effects when you're doing especially horror movies, I would like you to look at this catastrophe. It takes place at a racetrack. We have a bunch of hateable characters watching a bunch of fast cars drive around in a circle. playing stereotypes. Of course we have a racist asshole, of course we have a sexist asshole, of course we have an impatient parent. We're just really really low on people to like. And man, right out the gate the movie seems to lose me. We have seen three other better opening catastrophes and the CGI is so embarrassingly awful that my theory is that maybe, maybe, Maybe it looked better in 3D if you had the stupid glasses on and you're seeing it in the theater as like the presentation, but damn, watching it on standard version, watching it on a DVD or on your TV or even projected, the effects look terrible, laughable. So I can't get into the effects. The violence doesn't, you know, get to me. I can't have, like, oh wow, that was an amazing kill and sort of feel that sort of shameful elation of, oh, that must have hurt. None of that's working for me. The only thing that this movie has is the predictable thing that every final destination has. A group of characters who are doomed and a villain that we cannot see or access or understand. And that's not enough to hang a movie on, I do not think. Why the premonitions? Um, The main character, of course, has a premonition about the initial thing, but... Throughout the movie, he keeps on having more dreams and more premonitions, and they double down on this to a ludicrous degree in the third act, to an infuriating degree in the third act. But whenever he's in the dream world, it's the same thing. Overproduced, kinetic, special effects looking very CGI. Whether or not it was shot that way, even if they shot something practical, in post, they put CGI on it to make it look fake. It's true in most of the stunt sequences, but it's very true in all of the dream sequences. There's one scene where he sees a snake sort of jumping out in the, towards the you know 3D screen in one of his dreams, and I couldn't help but think of snakes on a plane. Um, there's some memorable sequences. There's a very racist character who's doing very racist things, and his death is prolonged... And dragged out and hilarious. He's both dragged and set on fire, and it's okay. His death is funny because he's a racist Much likewise with a sexist character we have in the movie Everything that comes out of that guy's mouth is terrible. Everything that he does is terrible So when he has this big elaborate death involving a draining swimming pool, it's not horrifying It's hilarious This is not me making a moral judgment. It's just like, it's hard to feel anything about these characters. There's a good sequence in a car wash. One of the characters gets stuck in a car wash and, like, in typical weird ways, like, (laughs) fate is making all of the mechanics just go disastrously wrong. This huge Rube Goldberg sort of series of events starts drowning her in her own car. And, like, it's a fairly credible sequence. And in order to pay devil's advocate, there's another sequence where there's a woman in a a salon, and we know death is out looking for her. And, like, what's going to happen? Is the scissors going to slip? Is the chair going to drop? What terrible thing is going to end up getting her? And the thing that does eventually get her is completely unrelated to anything in the salon. In that particular case, I think the setup to the kill was significantly more interesting than the kill itself, but at least that was a sequence where I was feeling something. There's an interesting sequence where there's a character in a hospital and water starts dripping down on, on, onto his bed and he knows something's up and he tries to crawl away and suddenly a tub actually falls through the floor and lands on him. And again it was a cartoon Wily e. Coyote death, but I laughed and in a good way I thought it was like a fairly satisfying thing. But yeah, uh, then the movie tries to get all meta. In the third act, two of our characters are going to see a 3D movie. Oh, what, what, what? And there's a weird, stupid explosion that's going to happen behind the screen and send all sorts of fire and debris into the audience. And it seems like a huge portion of the movie is taken up by another premonition. It's frustrating because like there's some cool deaths, but most of the deaths in this film actually don't actually happen. They're they're visions. They're, you know, warnings of doom, but they're not the actual doom. They're probably the goriest and coolest kill of the movie. Involves this woman falling into the mechanics of an escalator and having her leg and body chewed up in a real gnarly fashion. But, doesn't count. Didn't really take place. We're just gonna flash back again. It's like, in a weird way, the Final Destination isn't... they They do two Final Destination movies in one. He flashes he has the premonition of two separate catastrophes in this particular movie. I don't know. There's just been really shaky with the rules, and it's it's hard to get super excited about it. I mean, it's another one of these horror movies where as the credits roll, you're like, oh no, everyone died. (laughs) And this is the box that Final Destination has put itself in. We know at this point to not, you know cheer, well I guess we can cheer for our characters, but to not to expect our characters to survive. It's just not something that happens in these movies. So when inevitably we see a huge cat- catastrophic car accident happen at the end of the movie and all of our survivors get wiped off the board, it is neither sur- surprising or is it satisfying. It's just kind of meh, which is how this movie kind of lands in the end of things. All those poor bastards, all those evil sons of bitches have died at the hands of fate. And you can't beat fate. Stubbornly, the mortality rate stays true at 100%. And I think that the Final Destination franchise was in a real tough spot to find any way to continue on and be fresh. All of that said, this movie should have been better than it was. The stunts should have been better. The energy of the movie should've been better, and the CG should've either been better executed or completely rethought. I want to be this guy who defends David R. Ellis, but this was not his finest hour. Do not, however, give up on the Final Destination franchise. Even though there is supposedly going to be trying to reinvent the machine going forward, the subsequent entry after this one actually has a couple tricks up its sleeve. But Final Destination 4, or The Final Destination, is very skippable. The thirteenth movie. What would your pitch be? Well,
1: I have a few ideas. Okay. The first one, uh, not ideas, I guess, but kind of thoughts. What about if you did sort of a prequel of sorts, Um, something in between parts one and two? So, going back to the kind of the rough hillbilly-looking Jason, um, he had that shack in the campground. Maybe you show the where he gets the sack over his head. I've always kind of liked the sack the had Jason, even though it's essentially, it's the town that dreaded sundown, yeah. same kind of idea, but, uh, something about the crude one eye hole just kind of looked a little bit extra creepy. I thought, um, so I don't know. I thought maybe that'd be an area that's not really explored how he kind of became kind of on his own. And, um, I know you always hear talk about, uh, like a found footage. They've talked about doing a found footage, Jason or Jason in the snow, I think as well. But for my angle, I would say Jason killing teenagers at Camp Crystal Lake.
0: Yeah, don't know I think. Just
1: keep keep it simple. It seems the more of an angle they added to the sequels, the sillier it became. Because we need to add a twist, so now we're going to have Jason versus Carrie. Jason in New York. Jason in space. Now Jason can jump from body to body with yeah. his soul. How about uh, just keep it simple? Let's not be kidding ourselves. Friday the 13th does not need to be complicated.
0: This sounds like counterintuitive, but I also would say cut your budget. There's something, as much as I get cheap thrills out of the uh, remake of Friday the 13th, there's something too professional and too polished about it. It doesn't feel like a Friday the 13th movie in some ways. It's just like too clean somehow.
1: Maybe even add some of that 1982 grain to the film.
0: Yeah, don't you know, hire don't, the don't best actor. It. Don't hire the worst actor, but don't hire the best
1: actor. <laughs> hey, you don't have to overdo it like the grindhouse movie, but you know, just you know, maybe a little bit of, you know, film strip grain, but uh, I mean, you don't need to overthink it. You need a few things. You need 9 to 12 people at a lake, a masked killer, a machete, and maybe an axe. Yeah. And uh, there's your movie. Um, or the other idea is uh, the biggest kind of fun wet dream for Friday the 13th fans is maybe a conclusion to the Tommy Jarvis story.
0: Ooh, Tommy's back.
1: I mean, what was he after he killed Jason again or he chained him to the bottom of the lake in part six? That's right. What's he done since then? Maybe maybe there's something there. Maybe Tommy has to come back. I don't know. I think that would be something that would interest people. But, right. But I think we don't have enough just simple straight-ahead slashers now with without too much explanation like they did with halloween they start add too much explanation and it becomes less scary so
0: um that's funny cause i want to we'll we'll talk about that later on with one of my one of the reviews i think uh would you like to hear my elevator pitch for a friday the 13th sequel i'm all ears okay so uh, like a grizzled like war veteran you could hire like some over the hill former action star that's not steven seagal Maybe maybe a Jean-Claude Van Damme-ish type figure. But uh, but he is back from the wars and he's very lauded, but he can't enjoy anything because while he was away, his beloved teenage daughter was killed by Jason. So he gets a bunch of his old war buddies together and he stakes out Camp Crystal Lake and he gets a bunch of girls to do some, like, sexy yoga training out by the, the lake <laughs> as a lure because, you know... Uh, Jason doesn't like people doing sexy things in his neighborhood, right? Uh, so it becomes like this: these these old veterans mixed with these like haughty uh, yoga students, and versus Jason all, all together at once. Hey.
1: At first, I thought you're kind of going like the aliens kind of route for the sequel, maybe more action and firepower. Oh. But the the yoga the yoga angle makes it,
0: uh, <laughs> it interesting. Makes it, yeah, I know that's an extra added spice to it. Sexy, sexy yoga, whatever class, just to lure them out. I mean, I say embrace your genre. If you're making a Friday the Thirteenth movie, know what you're doing, and again, keep that budget low. But I mean, I just sort of like the idea of somebody who's there prepared. And he's got maybe a couple of his old war buddy veterans helping him out and, uh, you know, setting traps and uh, trying to actually lure Jason to to try and slaughter these girls. But a bunch of guys are there to try and protect him. I don't know. I don't know. Just my thoughts. Um, Okay.
1: And and that kind of goes along with the the Tommy Jarvis kind of thing, too, like someone that's prepared. That's right. And, you know, maybe, well, with Tom Matthews, he's still doing stuff, right? Is that his uh, I think so. Tommy in part six?
0: Well, he I, I assume he's still around. I don't know. I haven't been following his <laughs> career, I guess. <laughs> Bottom of the lake, the corpse anchored to the sediment on the lake bed by several concrete blocks, twirled slowly in the current. The ropes that bound the body were waterlogged and fraying, and one dead arm had come free, drifting upwards to point limply towards the surface in the sunlight. Up above, a slight breeze urged a procession of gentle ripples across the surface of the lake, rolling ceaselessly towards the shore. A few birds spun overhead in easy circles. A squirrel scurried along the water's edge, ducking in and out of the grass. From somewhere, muffled voices could be heard. It was a warm spring day at Crystal Lake, and the mutilated corpses of his previous victims had long since been cleared away. On the back of the book, Friday the 13th, Church of the Divine Psychopath. Jason Voorhees, unkillable, unstoppable. Camp Crystal Lake's most infamous son is back, and he's doing what he does best. Following the drowning of a young boy named Jason Voorhees in 1957, Camp Crystal Lake was long been terrorized by a silent killer, a seemingly unstoppable murderer who hunts his victims in the dead of night. But when an insane religious group begin to worship Jason as a means of inflicting a holy retribution, they are oblivious to the carnage that will be unleashed when he escapes. One of the most feared icons in movie history returns in this brand new range of further adventures. Wearing his trademark hockey mask and armed with his deadly machete, Jason is back for revenge. So this was one of a couple of books published in the early knots, one called Hell Lake, this one, Church of the Divine Psychopath, this one's written by Scott Phillips. And it's a weird sort of fan thing that you'd think that there would be more of it, that it would be more popular. This novel has gone out of print. I'd love to say, you know, pick up a copy at your local bookstore or whatever, but you have to order it online, and uh, depending on where you go, you might have to pay over a hundred dollars for it. So strange. Same thing back in the day when they used to do novelization of the Friday the 13th movies. I remember my friend Scott Lehman, who you heard talk in this episode, he had a couple of them, and I thought it was so cool. I don't know why it's not more of a thing. I don't know why fan fiction in the realm of Friday the 13th isn't huge, because there's been a well, huge gap between movies, but absolutely zero drop in the interest and the love for Jason Voorhees. If, if anything, it's grown. There's the video game. It's just... It's made such crazy cultural impact that it's weird to me it's so hard to get your hands on these and that there's only two of these fan fiction books and not two hundred. So how is the book? Well, it accents everything about the series, both the good and the bad. If you want gruesome detail on the carnage that this powerful creature Jason Voorhees can inflict, the book's gonna do that. It makes the violence more visceral, more deep, more extreme. Unfortunately, it also makes the sexuality, which, let's be fair, is a component of the Friday the 13th sort of saga, seem that much more, I don't know, icky and unpleasant. It's not just that people are having sex or that they're describing sex. That's fine. That happens. I live in the real world. I am a pro-sex person. But it's the psychology, both the, the eye and the mind of the, of the author and the characters are either all obsessed with having sex with one character, with taking advantage of another character, with up to and including raping another character, or to just being run completely by their sexual organs, be them male or female. One of the main female characters is attracted to the priest who leads this cult of people who worship Jason Voorhees, and they believe that he is here to come back from death and punish sinners. So much so that they find his corpse in the lake, prop it up in a crucified stance at the front of this church, and worship it. But, of course, when Jason comes back to life, he doesn't care if you worship him. He's just going to kill you. Meantime, there's this SWAT team that's been sent in to deal with this religious extremist group, and a sort of Waco-like confrontation happens. Jason is going with both sides. I was going to say working both sides, but by I mean just killing Both sides willy-nilly. The actual technique of the writing is unimpressive, but it gets the job done. The detail of the gore is good, maybe a little bit repetitive, but like I said, the psychology of most of the characters is gross, and we spend more time in their heads than maybe I would like to. Like, if we were watching this in a movie format, we'd just get little bits and pieces of them, and it would be less of a thing to deal with. General note, fiction writers, screenplay writers. Cult ofs. There is all this thought about trying to do a cult of Freddy Krueger, and there's, of course, the whole cult of Thorn that creeps into the Halloween franchise. And now here they're going to try to do this cult thing with Friday the 13th. Cults are fascinating, like they're a weird psychological entity in the world, but they almost never work in horror movies. And especially when we're dealing with a slasher genre, don't overthink it. Not overthinking it is something that this particular book exceeds in. No, it's not great. It's a lot of fun. I enjoyed reading it. I burned through it in a couple of days. And, you know, I felt like maybe I should apologize to my brain afterwards. Is it the most amazing horror novel of the century, you know? <laughs> no, it, it's not House of Leaves, okay? No, it, it, it it's not, you know, uh, I, I don't know, It by Stephen King. It's a fan fiction movie on Friday the 13th. And I loved it, in in its own way, for all of its flaws. It reminds me of being a kid, camping with my friends, Scott and Karen, at Pine Lake. Scott and I set out to write our own horror novels at that young age. And I don't know if some people would say that there's something wrong with the world, that a book like this exists, but once upon a time in the early 2000s, a young writer or a wannabe writer got paid money to write a fan fiction novel of Friday the 13th. So as broken as the world may sometimes seem, at least this particular corner is functioning. If you can get your hand on it, by all means read it. But generally speaking, to the world and for the fans of Friday the 13th, Give us more comics. Give us more novels. Don't make it hard for us to enjoy Friday the 13th, especially if you're going to wait more than 10 years in between movies. This is nonsense. There's been a long brewing fight over the rights for Friday the 13th, which is slowing down any further new movies from coming out. In the meantime, this is what the fans have. Let them have it. To stop saying and rank and review is that man, this has had to be the toughest list. It's always the toughest list it seems, but sometimes all the movies are too strong, sometimes all the movies are too weak, and sometimes all the movies are just too the same. I do have a list here of you know my least favorite to the most, but the margin of top to bottom there's 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 not a lot of range here, but Let's do it, just to say that we did. In sixth position, Children of the Corn, Five Fields of Terror. Just, uh, they have stretched the premise of Children of the Corn well past the breaking point, and, uh... You know, there's just not a lot to get excited about here. I have to get worked up about actors early in their career and cameos from genre faces, but there's nothing about the movie that's particularly exciting or scary. In fifth place, the disappointing Final Destination 4. Although I'm a defender of that director and usually his stunts and special effects are there for me, in this case it went catastrophically wrong. In fourth place, possibly overperforming to some, Amityville 3D. I actually think it's okay. The 3D is the least sort of impressive thing about it, and it is kind of hilarious and dated in an 80s way, but I had more fun with it than I expected to. In third place, Lost Boys, The Tribe, and a lot of this has to do with my affection for the original Lost Boys and the fairly decent production values that went into it. I don't know how successful this attempt was, but I felt like they were trying, at least, and I appreciated that. It's not without its fun and without its charm. And number two and number ones, which a lot of people would assume would be at the bottom of the list, are some of the lowest-rent, direct-to-video, obscure and ignored movies of this bunch, probably. I'm going to give second place to Dracula 3 The Legacy. It's not amazing, but it's better than it has any business being. It closes the trilogy fairly satisfyingly, and within the little sort of box it's playing in, I think it's well-executed. And I'm i just, I'm just a fanboy of the writer-director. I've supported things he's done in the past, and I want to sort of be there for J.T. Petty. Mimic 3 had the audacity to use uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie as a blueprint and still be a giant bug monster movie featuring the likes of Lance Henriksen. It put a smile on my face. It might not put a smile on yours, but I had fun with it. Episode 191 of Rankin Review. Thank you so much for listening to it. If you needed something else to fill your ears with, there are other great podcasts that I can encourage you to check out. Cobwebs, a gothic horror podcast that's a friend of Rankin Review. The Shelf Shedding Movie podcast, hosted by regular contributor Mr. Jason Dubray. The Terror Table podcast continues its epic reign. And please do check out A Lifetime of Hallmark, which is a podcast dedicated to uh, discussing Lifetime and Hallmark films. So those are all good things to check out. And of course, if you have feedback to send me, you can send that feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I understand that this is a different episode, so I mean, try to be gentle. Check out the website at RankinReview.ca, and as always, thank you so much for listening to Rankin Review. And please tell a friend about the show. There will be another bunker episode in the future, but we'll 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 spread them out. We'll spread them out. I think this went well, kids. I really do.